Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota on Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. Welcome to Triumphs and Tragedies. This is a 20-part series on the history of the Catholic Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I say it's 20 parts, but it might be 25 parts. I don't know. Uh, But basically, we're going to go through about one century per session. And each podcast will be maybe 25 to 35 or 40 minutes long, depending how long it takes us to get through. This podcast is being produced in conjunction with my blog, Standing on My Head, which is found at DwightLongenecker.com. That's my blog website, and you'll find over there my bookstore, a connection to me and my speaking events, and various other things like my podcast homilies, uh, regular blog posts, guest bloggers, and so forth. I invite you to go and join me there at my blog website, DwightLongenecker.com. Now, why should we study history and the history of the Catholic Church? Well, it's very important for Catholics for three reasons to study history. Uh, The first reason uh, is because our faith is historical. It has deep roots back into Western culture, back into Europe, and therefore into Rome, and beyond Rome, back into the history of the world uh, as conveyed through the history of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. It's important for us to have deep roots so that we can have stable lives. And if we have stable lives, uh, we can understand where we are now, and not only where we are now, but where we've been and where we're going. It helps us to plan the forward and go uh, the future uh, confidently and to go forward into the future um, with full of faith and confidence with what God is doing. If we understand what God has done in the past through his church, we'll be able to understand more of what he's doing right now and go into that and step into that carefully. That leads us to the second reason, which is the old statement that uh, those who do not learn from the mistakes of history are bound to repeat them. That's certainly true. Over the last 20 centuries, the church uh, people have made many mistakes, and one of the things we'll be looking at century by century are the different heresies and corruptions uh, that Catholics have fallen into to be able to help us to understand what's happening in the church today and to be able to um, cope with that in a confident and faith-filled way. But I call it triumphs and tragedies because uh, there are lots of triumphs as well, and we'll be focusing therefore on the uh, triumphs of the saints and the different Catholic spiritualities, the different missionary movements uh, that have emerged from the church over the last 20 centuries in a reply and an answer to some of the problems that have come up. We're going to help us, therefore, to consider the problems in our faith lives today, in our parishes, our church, so that we can move forward confidently and deal with them, having learned from the past. 
But the third reason to study history as Catholics is really probably the most important, and that is that our faith is incarnational. Now, what I mean by this is that um, it's an answer to the prevailing thought in our society today. There's a, a, a widespread belief in our society that all religions are pretty much a make-believe. They're a fairy tale, they're a fable, uh, they're a myth, and they've all kind of been made up by people long ago to help them cope with life and, and maybe to help them think about getting to heaven one day if they're good enough. And uh, all these myths uh, are pretty much the same, and Christianity is one just like all the others. The thing is, it is not a myth, and it's not a religion like all the others. Christianity is rooted, of course, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. These important events are terrifically vital for our lives, and we need to understand that they were historical. That's why in the Creed, every Sunday when we go to church, we say that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. In other words, it was during a certain Roman time period that all these events took place. That's why the Gospels are rooted in history. And they tell us that this took place um, during the reign of Caesar Augustus and, and so forth. So that uh, as we go through the New Testament, we understand that these events are actually deeply historical, that they really did take place. However, that leads me to a, a little bit of an explanation, therefore, about myth. What is myth? In J.R. Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings, Galadriel, one of the characters, says that history became legend and legend became myth. What she means by that is that there were real historical events, but eventually uh, they were told and retold, so they became legendary, and they became a bit larger than life. And then finally in myth, they took on uh, a meaning of their own, and they took on a kind of history of their own. So while the events in the New Testament are historical, they're also, in a sense, mythological. It doesn't mean that uh, when we say myth that they, didn't, that they didn't happen, or they were made up, or they were a fairy tale. No, not at all. They really did happen. They really did take place. It's just that over the years, we began to understand the deep meaning of them and began to understand the theological meaning of them, and the church began to meditate on what happened in, in God through Jesus Christ and how the incarnation changed history and changed the world forever. So we'll be exploring all of these things, but in this introductory session, therefore, because it's about history, I'd like to take a few minutes to actually talk, therefore, about the historicity of the Gospels, the historicity of the New Testament itself. The New Testament presents itself as being uh, the recounting of historical facts, things that really happened to real people at a particular point in time in history. And although uh, scholars like to write it off as being myth or being made up or being fairy tales much later after the event, this is simply not true. And it's not true for various good reasons. And those reasons have to take us to the actual understanding of the historicity of the Gospels. In other words, uh, how are the Gospels and how do we know the Gospels are actually recounting real events of real people in a real place and time? And that they weren't just made up. They weren't just fairy tales. They, they weren't just wishful thinking that uh, Christians sort of uh, dreamed up in their heads about this person, Jesus. Well, the first thing is that the Gospels are actually presented to us as eyewitness accounts. Time and again, uh, in the gospel, the gospel writers say, these things really happened. We saw these at the beginning of Luke's gospel, for instance, and in Peter's epistle. They say, these happened. Uh, we talked to the eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses. We didn't make this up. We saw all of this. This is what really took place. 
However, there's more to it than that. Uh, th there's a wonderful book out by a New Testament scholar from Scotland called Richard Balkum. It's called um, About the Eyewitnesses. And this, this book goes into great detail, giving a great scholarly account of why when we read the New Testament, we're actually coming across eyewitness accounts. Not only does uh, do the gospel writers say that they were eyewitnesses and that they spoke to eyewitnesses, but there's lots of interesting details which Balkum brings out. I don't have time to go into it in great detail, but it's things like this. The names of people are mentioned, particular people's names. People that uh, the readers of the gospel or those who are listening to the gospel stories being told would have heard and would have known. So, for instance, in Mark's gospel, when they're talking about Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross, Mark goes uh, back through and he says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. Well, if you're making up a fairy tale or a myth, you don't mention that somebody in the story is the father of, of particular people. Mark mentions Rufus and Alexander almost as if the people who would have read that knew who Rufus and Alexander were. And they would have said, oh yeah, that's Rufus and Alexander's father. We know them. And Balgham goes through in his book and outlines more and more details like this, how particular people's names are mentioned, and that if you were writing a story or making up a story, you would use different names to distinguish the people. Another example is, for instance, the women who go to Jesus' tomb. Uh, it says, um, Mary Magdalene was there, and Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, and then there was Salome and Joanna, and they mention all the names as if these are people that the readers actually would have known. Furthermore, he makes a distinction when he says that it was Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, so that you distinguish her from that other Mary uh, that you also might know, so that you're not confused. This is what happens when people are telling real-life stories, not when people are making stories up, which are fables and myths and fairy tales. Another example using the names from, from the New Testament is uh, Bauckham shows that the names of the apostles, for instance, include nicknames of some of the apostles, looking at the linguistics and uh, of it all. And he says, uh, if you're talking uh, about a real story, you use the nicknames of people because uh, the people who are listening to you or reading those accounts understand who that person is by their nickname rather than by their formal name. In this and many other different ways, Balkum goes through and shows that the gospel accounts are most certainly written by eyewitnesses and by those who were speaking directly to eyewitnesses. In other words, it's very important to the gospel writers to stress that these were real events and things that really happened, that they were not made up. In fact, St. Peter says that in his epistle. He says, we saw this. We didn't make it up. Uh, it's something which is real. Now, this is very important as a foundation for studying the history of the Catholic Church because we're saying, first of all, the events of the Gospels are actually real. They're actually um, things which happened, and the Gospels are a reliable historical account of what took place. Some people will go through and say, well, there are discrepancies in the Gospels. There's details that don't match up. And we will go back and say, well, yes, of course, that's what you would expect. It's real life. Uh, when people see, two or three people see the same event, they report it slightly differently because that's the way real life actually is. There are some excellent books on these topics, which I will have uh, on my website, DwightLongenecker.com. They will be listed on special uh, posts in the uh, church history section of the blog. This section is reserved for donor subscribers who help to support this podcast, um, but there will be listed there extra resources to go to and extra discussions about these particular points as we go through our 20-part podcast. The podcast is free for everyone, uh, but those extra pages are also there for, as an extra bonus uh, for those who are listening who are part of the uh, donor-subscriber scheme on my, on my blog website. 
So the Gospels are actually written by uh, eyewitnesses or those who had actually spoken to eyewitnesses. There are a couple of other details we have to go through to actually uh, pin down and talk about the actual historicity of the Gospels, and that is who wrote the Gospels and when were they written? The four Gospels are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, you might not know that uh, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John, are sometimes ascribed by liberal scholars to uh, people who wrote them much, much later and took the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in order to give their writings a bit of extra authority. These would be called pseudonymous writings or writings under a pen name. Now, we know that certain writers did do this under the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels are much later um, writings that pretend to be Gospels, like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And these Gospels were uh, produced much later, and they did actually take the names of uh, different apostles in order to give their writings a little bit extra authority or extra boost. But this is not the case with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's not the case for a couple of reasons that we can pin down. First of all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are attested as the authors of these Gospels in every ancient document right back through history. Uh, right back to the earliest of the documents and the earliest manuscript documents we have of the Gospels are little scraps of pap papyrus from uh, the early 2nd century. In other words, just about 70 or 80 years after Jesus died. And uh, the Gospel writers must have been Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because every ancient text uh, tells us that the Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Furthermore, we have uh, interesting uh, extra-biblical evidence, the writings of <clears throat> Ignatius of Antioch, who was the Bishop of Antioch in what is now Syria, around the year 108, where he quotes Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and so we know that Matthew's Gospel must have been written by then, but also uh, we have the stories of how these Gospels came to be written from uh, various writers. Irenaeus, in the middle of the second century, for instance, uh, tells us that Mark's Gospel was written based on the preaching of Peter in Rome, and that he was uh, uh, friends and a companion of Peter. Tell and also we have a witness that Matthew's Gospel was first written uh, in his own language, Aramaic or Hebrew, uh, and then it was translated later into uh, Greek. Uh, and we know also uh, that Luke's Gospel has very early witnesses to its authenticity. But there's another reason, too, why Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially uh, must be written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is this. If the writers had been trying to uh, put a false name on it in order to give their uh, fake writing some extra authenticity, they most certainly would have used real apostles to give themselves the authority. Remember, Mark and Luke are not actually apostles. Mark is a companion of Peter and Paul and a traveling companion of them, and Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. But they are not themselves apostles. Uh, they are one step removed from the apostles. Therefore, uh, we can be sure that Mark and Luke are actually written by Mark and Luke, because if they were written by another author trying to claim apostolic authority, they most certainly would have called their gospel the gospel of Peter, uh, or the gospel of Paul, or the gospel of, of Andrew, or someone else like that who was one of the apostles from the inside circle. So, we can be confident then that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, one of the apostles of Jesus, uh, who is sometimes also known as Levi, 
Mark, the traveling companion of Peter and Paul, who most scholars also trace to uh, various stories in the gospel itself. So he was a companion of the disciples, although he was not an apostle. Uh, And Luke, who was a doctor, a physician, who also wrote the book of Acts and was a companion and traveling partner and missionary partner with St. Paul. And then John's gospel uh, was written uh, considerably later by uh, the apostle John, the um, the brother of James and one of the four Peter, Andrew, James, and John who were in, in, on the inside circle with Jesus. Now, those are the men who wrote the Gospels inspired by the Holy Spirit. When were they actually written? This is where the detective work becomes quite interesting because, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not put the date on the top of their manuscript the way you do when you're doing a paper at school. Uh, Instead, uh, we can trace uh, when the Gospels were written by doing some uh, very interesting detective work. The thing we do is we find, first of all, the very latest date uh, that they could have been written. And the latest date that they could have been written is the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, probably around 120. Uh, AD, which is when we actually have some manuscripts uh, quoting the Gospels, and therefore we can trace it back to that point and say if they were writing um, the Gospels then or referring to the Gospels then in their own writings, then we know that the Gospels must have existed. So, for instance, St. Ignatius of Antioch quotes Matthew's Gospel in the year 108, so we know that Matthew's Gospel existed at least by then. So, we can take roughly the year 100, about 70 years uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection, for the latest that the Gospels could have been written. However, we can go back a little bit further than that, and we can begin tracing uh, some dates back to find an earlier date for the writing of the Gospels. And one of those dates that we can identify from exterior sources, in other words, other historical events that were uh, very major that we know about, that we can pin certain um, events in the Gospel to, is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans was a huge event for the Jews. Uh, And therefore, we want to see whether it's actually mentioned in the Gospels. Well, it is mentioned in the Gospels, but it's mentioned by Jesus, uh, who is actually seems to be prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And some scholars have said, if Jesus mentions the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in his uh, prophecies, therefore, the Gospels must have been written after uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, because, of course, nobody can foretell the future. But Jesus was the Son of God. He could have conceivably uh, supernaturally foreseen the future, but he didn't even need to do that to be able to foretell the future. You know, it doesn't take uh, a a, a supernatural vision to be able to foretell the future sometimes. Jesus knew how rebellious the Jews were. He knew how ruthless the Romans were. It wouldn't have taken much for him to predict that eventually if the Jews continued along the path they were continuing around his lifetime in 30 uh, AD, that eventually the Romans would, would would have would have enough and, 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 and stamp on the whole thing and even come through and destroy their whole country. So uh, 70 AD is mentioned uh, in the Gospels by Jesus um, in, his, in his prophecy, but I think we can actually find another date which is earlier, which makes a lot more sense to connect with the Gospels, and that is the date of 65 AD. 65 AD, Peter and Paul are in Rome, and they're both prisoners, and all of the traditions tell us that they died under the persecution of the church by the under the emperor Nero. That Peter and Paul died around 64 or 65 AD. Now, why is this important? It's important because the Acts of the Apostles, which tells us about Peter and Paul, 
indicates that by the end of the Acts of the Apostles, Peter and Paul are still alive. Paul is living in Rome, and Luke doesn't tell us about his death. He doesn't tell us about Peter's death either. John, which is written maybe 20 years after this, does actually mention Peter's death in his gospel. But Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, does not. Peter and Paul are still living by the end, at the end of the Acts of the Apostles. Therefore, if the Acts of the Apostles ends and Peter and Paul are still living, we can conclude that the Acts of the Apostles was written before 65 AD when they died. Therefore, we can put the Acts of the Apostles sometime in that five-year period between 60 and 65 AD. Now, Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, but he also wrote Luke's Gospel, and he wrote Luke's Gospel before the Acts of the Apostles. Therefore, if the Acts of the Apostles was written between 60 and 65 AD, we can push the authorship of Luke back to around 55 to 60 AD. So Luke's Gospel is written around six, uh, 55 to 60 AD. Now, most of the scholars tell us that Luke's Gospel was reliant on Matthew's Gospel. Uh, well, sorry, was reliant on Mark's Gospel. So Mark's Gospel comes before Luke's Gospel. So if Luke's Gospel is, if you're still with me, if Luke's Gospel is written between 55 and 60, then Mark's Gospel must also have been completed by around the year 55, maybe between 50 and 55. Now it gets even more interesting with Matthew's Gospel, because the ancient traditions tell us that Matthew's Gospel was first written in Hebrew or Aramaic, and scholars believe that uh, this sort of proto-Matthew, this first version of Matthew, was a collection in Hebrew <coughs> and Aramaic of Jesus' sayings and actions, which had been put together based on eyewitness accounts around Jerusalem and Judea and that later it was translated into Greek, because the, the gospel we have now is of Matthew is in Greek. And therefore, we have to say, when was this uh, first edition of Matthew, this earlier edition of Matthew, written? It must therefore have been written before Mark, uh, and therefore takes us back to around 45 to 50 AD. Some scholars place it even as early as 40 to 45, just about seven years uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, if this is true, it means that all of the Gospels, uh, the three um, first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were all composed before 60 AD. That's less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Modernist scholars, scholars like to tell us that, oh, there was a long period of time after Jesus' death, before the Gospels were written down, and over this time the stories were actually handed on from one generation to another, and they changed, and they added mythological elements and the miraculous elements. None of that was in the original stories, and none of that really happened, and it all developed. No! That's just a lie, because the Gospels were completed less than the first, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, Mark, and Luke, were completed 30 years, uh, just 30 years uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Think back now. Uh, most of us can remember what happened 30 years ago, and if we're too young to remember what happened 30 years ago, our parents remembered what happened 30 years ago. If there were lies, if there were miraculous elements and mythological elements which were brought in to the gospel stories, then there were still people living there who would have said, no, 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 it didn't work, happen like that. It didn't work like that. And remember, Mark refers to people when he says, Simon and Cyrene, the, the father of Rufus and Alexander, we actually see right there that we're talking about eyewitnesses, somebody whose father was there and carried the cross for Jesus. 
No, these were eyewitness accounts written about real events which really happened to real people at a particular point in time. Now, why am I belaboring this point? You might say, I thought it was pretty obvious that the gospel stories were true. Yes, the gospel stories are true. It's just that there's been a great attack on the gospel accounts by modern scholars who like to pretend that they were written much later and they incorporated lots of mythological elements and legendary elements and things that never happened. And a lot of that is because they don't actually like to deal with the miraculous elements in the stories and how those uh, that the miracles really took place uh, and that there was really a virgin birth and a resurrection uh, and a walking on the water and a feeding of the 5,000 and those other stories of miracles that took place. They like to tell us that no one would be able to believe those things. Well, they've had trouble believing them when they actually happened. If you remember, the uh, disciples were hard-headed and ordinary people who realized that a one boy's lunch could not feed 5,000 people and you couldn't walk on the water and that somebody rising from the dead uh, was something which just didn't happen. And so we're, conf we're confronted with the miraculous elements in the stories as historical events which really took place and were genuinely astounding and that's why they were written down because they were life uh, they were earth-shattering and they were uh, history-breaking. So that is some of the background about the history of the Gospels. The rest of the New Testament, of course, apart from the book of Revelation, are letters to the churches, letters by St. Paul, St. Peter, uh, and some of the others to the very early Christians, in which we find a taste of Christian life right there in the very first century. And that's where we're going to begin our 20-part series called Triumphs and, Tri Triumphs and Tragedies with what happened in the first century, that first century of the church. Uh, when Jesus was born, his life, death, resurrection, and then the amazing events uh, after Pentecost when the church was founded and the work of the Holy Spirit began in the world. This is Triumphs and Tra Tragedies. It's a 20-part series on the history of the Catholic Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I encourage you to come to my blog, DwightLongenecker.com. Uh, where I uh, write every day, uh, or most days anyway, where you can hear my homilies uh, on podcasts and connect with me. You can browse my books and be in touch. Thank you for listening. This has been Triumphs and Tragedies, a 20-part history of the Catholic Church. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land gift shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. I learned how many people we could help and how good you feel after you've helped others. I know Lent is about giving, so I want to give. These kids are talking about CRS Rice Bowl, a Lenten program known by generations of Catholic families. Children love it because they experience different cultures and gain a lasting impression of the people they are helping. You can bring CRS Rice Bowl into your home and experience the joy of seeing your children or grandchildren find new meaning in Lent. Visit crsricebowl.org to get started. Rice Bowl inspired me to pray more and to pray for those who are less fortunate. The Cincinnati Catholic Men's Conference is back. Tickets are on sale now for Saturday, April 28th at the Taft Theater at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534.
The Speaker Conference roster is being hailed as one of the best lineups in the country. In rare appearances, come see Father Mitch Pacwa from EWTN, the man motivator Father Larry Richards, former Moeller High School and University of Notre Dame head football coach Jerry Faust, and the big celebrity keynote, Baz Rutten, UFC world champion, MMA world champ, and movie star. The conference theme is what it means to be a true Christian man in today's society. Don't miss the incredible day of motivation, spiritual benefit, and fellowship with men from all walks of life. Get tickets now at CincinnatiMensConference.com or call 513-214-1534. That's CincinnatiMensConference.com or 513-214-1534. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at BreadboxMedia.com.